Hi, I am Antonio Gonzalez, and today I'm thrilled to have Dr. Mary Louise Meng with us. Dr. Meng is an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Duke University. She completed her residency, a cardiac and an obstetric anesthesiology fellowship at Columbia University, New York. She has been publishing some amazing articles related to the anesthetic care of the pregnant patient with cardiovascular disease. Besides, she has been the guest speaker at many institutions and international meetings. Welcome, Dr. Meng. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me, Antonio. I'm really excited to talk with you. All right. So uh, talking about some of the great work you've been putting out there, you just published uh, a paper that came out uh, part of a collaboration with the American Heart Association, the American Heart Association Scientific Statement article uh, related to cardiovascular disease and their maternal mortality. So talk to us, talk to us a little bit about why cardiovascular disease is such a problem in the United States right now. So I think the biggest thing is that pregnancy is changing. Basically, who's deciding to get pregnant and when, and the underlying health of Americans. So if we think about the main factors, we've got older patients, who have more comorbidities, most importantly, diabetes, obesity, and hypertension, getting pregnant at older ages is a setup for cardiovascular disease in pregnancy. Additionally, you have a lot of patients who had amazing congenital heart repairs who are now surviving to adulthood. So we also have that population. Yeah, that makes sense. If our patient population is getting sicker, we were gonna have more complications during pregnancy. And, um, you know, it's very interesting because you also in another paper discuss about this new emerging field that is actually called cardioobstetric because, you know, I see as a field, we understand that it's so important to take care of our parturians that are not doing so well in terms of uh, mortality compared to other high income countries. So tell us about this emerging field of cardioobstetrics. So I think that there is basically every type of specialty ha like hyphen obstetrics right you could have oncology obstetrics anything obstetrics right pregnant patients get the same diseases that, that non-pregnant patients get but what makes the cardio part a little more uh, necessary is that the physiology during pregnancy is changing, right? So you may have somebody who has some other disease, usually we treat them the same way in pregnancy, but with cardiovascular conditions, there really are a lot of nuances to how we care for patients to make sure that we maintain mom's physiology at the appropriate state so that the, uh, the fetus is able to uh, thrive. So this field um, basically is cons consists of cardiologists that have a particular interest in women's health during pregnancy, anesthesiologists who have um, cared for these patients over many years with and without cardiac fellowship, obstetricians with a particular interest in cardiac disease who realize how many of their patients have this disease, and nurses, ICU nurses, cardiothoracic surgeons, it's a whole um, multidisciplinary team that basically goes into this field of cardioobstetrics. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely seems that it's a very big multidisciplinary team. We have we have one uh, a great multidisciplinary team here at Yale. And you mentioned that you don't have to have 
a fellowship, right? No, the, the, importantly, the answer is no. Any uh, anesthesiologist or obstetric anesthesiologist who's interested in taking great care of these patients um, is a perfect cardio-obstetric anesthesiologist. Now, there are going to be times and cases where as an OB anesthesiologist, you want to partner with a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist. For example, a patient with low EF where you're titrating several inotropes or a patient with pulmonary hypertension, severe pulmonary hypertension, right heart failure. It's helpful that I have a cardiothoracic fellowship and practice and experience for me taking care of those patients. But an obstetric anesthesiologist brings amazing skills to the table for those cases, making sure that the neuraxial is appropriate, making sure that maternal symptoms are consistent with the signs and symptoms of labor delivery or cesarean. Um, and those are things that the cardiac anesthesiologist may not know. So you don't need to do both to be able to care for these women. And often it's a partnership. So what I recommend to residents that are thinking about two fellowships is choose it if you could see yourself practicing one or the other alone. The combination is super cool, but these cases aren't every day. Um, so you certainly can't make a full-time practice of it, but the skills definitely are transferable to uh, other, other cases. Yeah, definitely cardio-obstetric is an emergent field. And I think for good reason. I think many experts in our specialty support the development of this field, particularly the dual fellowship training. In a recent short report published in IGOA titled The Time Is Now, Dr. Padilla and other leading experts in our specialty state the following, and I quote, Dual subspecialty training in both obstetric anesthesiology and critical care medicine represents one strategy to improve the care of critically ill obstetric patients. With that in mind, at Yale, we encourage and provide dual fellowship opportunities for those residents interested in this emerging field. Dr. Meng, does Duke University provide dual fellowship opportunities as well? Yep. Right now we have one fellow in the program, Lillian Ernst. She's finishing her first year in OB fellowship, and then she'll be doing CT anesthesia this coming year. And then I'm hoping that we have one or two in the following cycle as well. Uh, one or two fellows. Yeah, that is great. I think part of the reason why uh, the dual fellowship works so great is, is part of the reason why obstetric anesthesiology as a subspecialty uh, helps with the outcome of our obstetric patient. And I think a lot of has to do with the ability to communicate um, in, in the right terminology with the ex with the experts from the other side. So you, you mentioned um, that, you know, the physiology of pregnancy can actually affect uh, the cardiovascular system. Why, why don't you um, give us a quick review of some of the major changes that are happening in the cardiovascular system, uh, the physiologic changes of pregnancy? Sure. So I think the best way to think about everything and make sense of it is that mom needs to increase her blood volume to grow the fetus. So through pregnancy, she's going to gain about two liters of blood volume. So her cardiovascular system needs to accommodate these fluid, this fluid. So all of the changes have to do with that. So in the beginning of first trimester, the maternal heart rate will start increasing and it will steadily increase through second and third trimester. The heart rate is increasing so that you can increase cardiac output to accommodate this fluid. The systemic vascular resistance will start to decrease in the beginning of the first trimester with some of the pregnancy hormones. And that basically just relaxes the vasculature to create more space for this new two liters of blood flow that's going to develop. 
The blood pressure or SVR basically plateaus out second trimester and by third trimester, her blood pressure may be back to its baseline. Those are the main changes, and it's also important to recognize the physiologic anemia of pregnancy. As her blood volume increases, the red cell mass doesn't keep up with it, so we have what we call a bit of a physiologic anemia. Additionally, your pulmonary vasculature should be mirroring your systemic vascular resistance, so so PVR should decrease a little bit. So you can imagine patients with pulmonary hypertension, if their pulmonary vascular resistance is fixed, that um, can, can pause a, pose a challenge. That is an amazing review. Thank you so much. That was a great summary. Now, you know, I, I want to understand a little bit more about this maternal mortality. You mentioned that, you know, our patient population is getting sicker. But there was another thing that was very interesting that you mentioned in your uh, paper, and that was that the um, the again racial disparities come into play here. Why, why do you think that um, that that is you know so highlighted in the cardiovascular disease? Um, I I don't know the answer to that question, Antonio. I'm going to be frank, and this is a really major area that needs. Um, more health services research, and we all need to be introspective in the care that we're delivering. Of course, there may be socioeconomic factors, um, but you know when we do amazing uh, studies where we control for these factors and we control for underlying comorbidities and we control for age and education, black women still have a higher risk of complications in pregnancy, morbidity and mortality. So we have to take a look at the system and the unmeasured factors to figure out what is going on. Um, in the care of these women before they reach pregnancy, during pregnancy, delivery, and postpartum. So a lot of unanswered questions there. And any of uh, your residents that are interested in this topic, I encourage them to try to partner with researchers that are doing real health disparities research using appropriate methods to get at the important answers to these questions so that we can imp improve uh, care for all women. Yeah, I agree. It's a very complicated uh, question and uh, definitely something that we definitely should strive to do better, as you mentioned, by doing better research. So I 100% agree with you. So, you know, now that we understand a little bit more about the problem at hand, let's actually talk about how do we start planning the care for this patient? You, you mentioned um, a delivery framework, which I think is genius. Can you actually walk us through that delivery framework? Thank you. I really appreciate that compliment. I think the most important thing is exactly that, to have a framework, to have a plan. Um, a lot of these situations, sometimes the team can feel chaotic, appear chaotic, situations happen quickly. And I think our job as anesthesiologists is to be the coach, is to have a plan, to organize the team, to keep things as simple in a complicated patient as possible so that we can um, stay organized and on task. So it's a very simple who, what, where, when, how al algorithm, who being, first we have to identify who is our patient, meaning what is her cardiac disease specifically and what is the risk that comes along with it. 
who is on the medical team. So who needs to be on our pregnancy heart team? Does she have some other special condition like a hematologic condition and we have to bring in a hematologist or is just the cardiologist and MFM all we need? Uh, what type of nursing do we need? That sort of thing in terms of the team. So what does she need? Does she need a vag, can she have a vaginal delivery? That's what we prefer. Um, there is less hemodynamic stress with a vaginal delivery, less risk of air embolism, less risk of bleeding, infection, and also less risk in subsequent pregnancies because if she has a C-section, usually she'll need subsequent C-sections. So um, what's basically, what does she need? What's her mode of delivery, vaginal or cesarean? Is there a maternal or a fetal indication for the cesarean delivery? And then some of these women are sick enough that they do need a termination of pregnancy. So that is another factor in our what, what is it that she needs? I will add another what should be contraception. So as anesthesiologists, we should take part in making sure that there is a plan for postpartum contraception in our, in our high-risk patients that need some time for their physiology to return to normal before they contemplate another pregnancy. Where means where should we care for her? And so ACOG and SMFM have these amazing maternal level of care, um, the structure. It's, it's basically from birthing centers to level four centers. What type of center should she deliver in, meaning what resources are necessary for her care? And I encourage the residents to take a look at the maternal levels of care to understand, Yale, you guys are a level four center, but what maybe some of your smaller community hospitals may be. The other aspect of where is where within the hospital should she deliver? Is this a vaginal delivery on the labor floor, or is this a more complicated cesarean that you may want to do in a cardiothoracic operating or a main operating room? When, so is she decompensating and we need to make our plans right now and get her um, delivered quickly? Or are we meeting in second trimester as our pregnancy heart team and just checking in to see what our plan will be for when she shows up for delivery? Um, and then the last part is the fun part is the how, how do we do the anesthesia? And so for this, we've got multiple things we're gonna consider, right? So. Are we going to do neuraxial anesthesia? That's preferred, but are there contraindications such that we do need to do general anesthesia? What will be the vasopressors or inotropes, pulmonary vasodilators, all the medications we'll have available? What will be our plan for hemorrhage prevention? What uterotonics can we use or can't we use? And then where will she recover? Can she recover on the labor floor or is she a patient who should go to the intensive care unit for a higher level of monitoring for a little bit after delivery? Well, that was an amazing summary of the, the framework. Now, I, I want to go back a little bit, if you don't mind, uh, because, and the reason I want to go back to the who is because sometimes when we are working, as you mentioned, in a cardio-obstetric team, sometimes you will see notes from your cardiology saying, oh, this patient has a CARPREX score of one, two, three, or Sahara score of one, two, uh, or a modified who, uh, where health organization score, uh, group one, group two, group three, um, so, you know, what, what is the, what are the implications of these scores? Sure. So, um, what I would encourage the residents listening to do is go ahead and Google anytime you have a patient with cardiac disease, 
modified WHO risk score or MWHO. So what this is, is, is basically a score one through four. There are five buckets because there's a middle bucket that's a two, three. Um, and it basically puts the majority of cardiac disease um, in a kind of like a risk stratification, low to high risk, one being lowest risk, four being su such high risk of maternal morbidity and mortality that if you have one of these conditions, and especially if it's untreated, pregnancy is contraindicated and if it occurs the physicians should recommend termination or, or at least discuss termination so um what i have my residents and fellows do is take a look at what her lesion is and where she falls to help us understand what her risk is um nobody can memorize this so that's why i say google it every time you've got a patient and this helps us understand kind of what level of monitoring we probably need um and what and what level of care and what players we really need on our team so um over the years this is what i have used to make my decisions about who's sick enough to need an a-line who might need an inotrope um who might be somebody who should have a cardiac anesthesiologist so if i'm not available calling the ct team and making sure that there is a colleague on standby for the OB team, you know, necessary if she has a level three or level four lesion. It's important to note that what is not included on this risk stratification is um, ischemic cardiomyopathies and um, coronary artery disease. So that is a pretty high risk condition. I personally would put that in MWHO group three. Um, and, and if it's, it's active, it, it may make her a four, but she does definitely a high risk condition. So the next one to talk about would be CARPREG2. So what CARPREG2 is, is it's a risk score from Dr. Candace Silversides and Dr. Sam Sue in Canada. So they basically wanted to create a risk score so that we could calculate what a woman's risk of morbidity and mortality are if she has cardiac disease. It's important to note that the outcome is a very diverse outcome. It's arrhythmia, heart failure, stroke, um, and uh, and even mortality. So you're going to have a you know a percent risk for a patient, but those things are very different, right? An arrhythmia may be completely benign or treatable. It's totally different from a more mortality event. So that's the caveat when using the CARPREG score is. It helps us understand what she's at risk for, but it's still kind of a bucket. We're still lumping and not totally splitting out the risk for the different events. So what they showed is that the highest risk conditions overlap with the MWHO group three and four lesions, such as mechanical valves, which are high risk because of the need for anticoagulation and the high risk of thrombosis in those patients, anybody with decompensated heart failure or ventricular dysfunction, um, somebody who's had a previous cardiac event, the high risk left-sided lesions, like the obstructive lesions like hokum, aortic stenosis, mitral stenosis, pulmonary hypertension, as we mentioned in the physio physiology section is a high risk lesion, coronary artery disease, high risk aortopathies, and patients who haven't had a cardiac intervention but should have. So that's kind of a process of care measure that they entered into their risk score. That and late pregnancy assessment confer an increased risk because these are patients who really should have sought care um, or had care delivered to them to optimize them prior to pregnancy. 
So that's a useful um, kind of risk stratification tool that is very similar to what we've seen in ROPAC, which is the Registry of Pregnancy and Cardiac Disease. It's a European registry, but they have cases contributed from all over the world, both low and high income countries or, um, or low and high development countries. And they also show the same thing that the high risk lesions are decompensated or, or uh, heart failure or low ejection fraction, the class four lesions and patients who require anticoagulation. Well, that's a great, great way to explain uh, these classifications. And uh, you mentioned that actually you would encourage your residents to Google these. I actually encourage all my residents to download your paper and have it available as a PDF. That's what I do when I have when I go to clinic. Before I go to clinic, I review the patient's cardiac history. I go over the tables. You have amazing tables on uh, both of the papers that you um, have published uh, related to this topic of cardiovascular disease in pregnancy. Um, so I, I think they're great. Uh, you do mention something that actually was very interesting to me, and you state that um, the the M who is actually the most well suited tool for the anesthesiologist. Why, why is that? Um, I just really like the organization of the different um, conditions from low risk to high risk. I have seen amazing correlation in caring for these patients with how they end up doing. Um, so the risk score is is great. I mean, we all like calculators that help us determine risk, but um, it's important to know a, a woman's risk of something happening, but and then have the right things in place. But before I even meet a patient, I want to have a sense in my head of, hey, a repaired tet, they're actually MWHO class two, like they're, they're going to be okay. They usually do pretty well versus a woman with low deets and a big, big aorta. This is a very high risk um, patient. So before I even walk in to meet her and get her whole, whole history, I know basically where she falls on the spectrum of low risk to high risk. I think I think another thing, Antonio, is that like, you know, in medicine, we talk about lumping and splitting, like the diseases are so different, right? Like your vascular lesions, your aortopathies are so different from a woman who just had like a simple benign arrhythmia, which is so different from a woman who had a repaired complex congenital disease. So I like WHO because it really kind of splits it out a little bit. Yeah, I do like the organization of the WHO as well. I agree. Um, and, and yeah, I definitely was reading probably in one of your papers that it was the best at predicting cardiac event rates. So so that's definitely a plus. Um, another thing that I wanted to highlight that you already mentioned. So basically, these uh, the ACOG and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine created maternal levels of care. And, and th I think it's important for residents uh, listening to really understand that if you're looking for job security, that's what the maternal levels of care are doing for uh, obstetric anesthesiology as a, as a subspecialty, don't you think? Oh, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, it does, it does help to have boards, boards well, there's no boards in OB anesthesia, but um, OB fellowship train anesthesiologists on a labor floor. I think we do raise the standard of care because we're um, constantly seeking out the best way to do things and you know whatever's 
you know, front front line in the obstetric anesthesia world where we're assimilating that into our care. So um, I think, you know, when I was a resident is when the fellowship became ACGME accredited. And I was nervous to do it before it was accredited, which is silly, right? Um, but now it's accredited. So any resident that's that loves being on the labor floor, I think it is a great idea to do an OB anesthesia fellowship because um, there, there are not enough of us and there are labor floors everywhere that could really use um, improvements in, in the standards of their anesthesia care. So um, it's nice that a COG and SMFM recognize our role on the labor floor and that our subspecialty has contributed to improving care. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think actually when they came up with these um, the maternal levels of care, basically they they were indirectly telling hospitals, hey, if you want to be at level four, you need subspecialty trained people in obstetric anesthesiology up there. So, so I think uh, for residents just on the edge of thinking about whether they want to be part of an obstetric anesthesiology uh, group or, you know, do a fellowship uh, that, you know, there is job security out there. Yeah, totally agree. At this point, I would like to start asking you a couple of random questions, what I'll call a couple of grab back questions. Um, question number one, in general, which valvular lesion, stenotic versus regurgitan, do better peripartum? So that's a great question. It's a nice classic kind of boards question for the residents to understand. So if we think about stenotic versus regurgitant lesions and what hemodynamic conditions are favorable for these patients, it turns out that what happens in pregnancy is actually perfectly is, is what the hemodynamic goals for regurgitant lesions are. So I'll just cat out the bag, give you the answer there, residents, but now let's think through it together. So we talked about mom's SVR decreases, right? And her heart rate goes up a little bit, right? So those are your physiologic goals when you're taking care of a patient with a regurgitant lesion. You want the, the heartbeat to be a bit faster so she doesn't spend too much time regurgitating and you want your SVR to be lower so it's favorable gradient for blood to move forwards and not back. Backwards. With our stenotic patients, right, think about bringing in an AS patient or an MS patient, you're going to want to keep that heart rate nice and slow so she has plenty of time to fill through that stenotic valve, her left ventricle, which may be um, hypertrophied, um, and she may have some diastolic dysfunction, so you really need enough time in diastole for filling. And then also you want to make sure that your afterload is high enough because these patients often have with that thick LV, high left ventricular and diastolic pressure. So if your upstream pressure of your coronary perfusion gradient, which is your aortic um, diastolic pressure, if that's not high enough, then you're not going to perfuse your co coronaries well. So you want to keep your blood pressure, your SVR up in a stenotic lesion and your heart rate down. And that is the opposite of what happens in pregnancy. So um, that's the answer to that question, I think. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. So what are the benefits of a labor epidural? We always talk about an early labor epidural uh, for residents out there. What is an early labor epidural and how that benefits the cardiac patient? I think the most important thing that we are probably preventing with our labor epidurals is arrhythmias. Um, there's not a really good way to study this, um, but basically when we take away labor pain, we're reducing her catecholamine stress, right? 
she's still going to become tachycardic at delivery. So I would encourage residents to, to show up for some vaginal deliveries just to watch maternal hemodynamics. When she's doing the pushing maneuvers, she is still increasing her heart rate sometimes all the way up to 150. So I don't think that our, we're not totally blunting tachycardia. We're blunting with the pain that would be happening if we didn't have the epidural. Certainly we're blunting tachycardia through all that pain um, and, and the catecholamine release uh, with the pain. So definitely we are blunting a continued period of time of tachycardia that may also result in arrhythmias. Um, but but I think that's kind of the major reason why we want the epidural, as well as, you know, any patient is always at risk of going for an intrapartum C-section. And it's nice to have, especially in a cardiac patient, an, a well-functioning epidural in place to use that for your neuroxial anesthesia instead of having to do a stat general on a high-risk patient. I, I agree 100%. Uh, and I really like your explanation. Uh, you know, kind of following that question, um, to test those or not to test those, the cardiac patient? Um, I, I have no problem with the testose. I think we just need to be thoughtful about what you're using for your testose, right? Every dose, of course, is a testose. So you always want to be careful in any patient. But when I place, a, if I have an epidural catheter and if I haven't done a spinal dose, so I'm really going to do a de novo test on this catheter. For an intrathecal testos, I want to be thoughtful about how much local I'm going to give her, right? So if I were to, if I was going to give her seven and a half milligrams of bupivacaine intrathecally, that can, that can give you a pretty high block in some women, especially if they're obese. So you definitely want, if you're going to use that as your testos or, um, or whatever, whatever, uh, local anesthetic you choose, you just want to make sure that you're prepared that if it is intrathecal, that you're able to support her blood pressure if you get a higher block than expected. For your intravascular testos, you know, it depends on whether or not epinephrine is something you would feel comfortable giving her 15 mics, right? Um, if not, you can always use fentanyl. Most of these moms are exhausted. And if you give them 50 mics of fentanyl IV, they're going to feel it. So 50 mics of fentanyl as your intravascular testos is often a, a, a smart choice in these patients. Well, that was great. Thank you for that explanation. Now, another question here, loss of resistance to air or sailing. I think we can agree that loss of resistance to air or sailing is a question of preference, but there may be a cardiac condition in which the loss of resistance to sailing may be preferable to air. Can you, would you please talk to us about that? Yeah, I really don't use air ever. Um, so for me, the choice is doesn't really exist. I just use saline. Um, but yeah, if you have a patient who has a shunt, an intracardiac shunt, um, you know, you're, you're not going to want to be using air anywhere that could maybe go intravascular. So definitely you want to be using uh, saline for those patients specifically. Now, um, to wrap up, I mean, this has been a, a, an amazing summary of the cardiovascular uh, complications that we see during pregnancy and physiology. Um, so I would like to end the, this, uh, this recording with basically the 
Dr. Meng's top five recommendations when you're caring for a cardiac patient? All right, top five recommendations. I'm gonna start talking and you let me know when we get to five. <laughs> All right, number one is you have to talk to her about her symptoms, okay? And this is going to have, I guess there's maybe number one and number two is gonna be within this. When you ask her how she was feeling before pregnancy and find out what she could do with her you know, exercise capacity, how she was feeling first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, and really listen to what her physical exertion was and what her symptoms were, okay? By doing this, it gives you a sense of how um, compensated she is, was before pregnancy, is in pregnancy, and then is now. So I have found this to be an incredible guide for how um, how much care she's going to need and how she's going to do with delivery. So a woman who's really decompensated and can't do what she used to be able to do, I'm really worried about her. But a woman who's not feeling any heart failure symptoms, has been doing great through her pregnancy, I can reassure her and the team. Um, and that really kind of helps calm things down. So talking to her and listening to her, number one, because it guides your management. And number two, because it builds an incredible therapeutic relationship with her. So you're about to spend hours with her during a very scary time. Perhaps she's very anxious because she's been told she's got cardiac disease and this is risky. Um, and and you're maybe you're going to do a C-section or a vaginal delivery, whatever it is. Your job during that time is to pay attention to her symptoms and figure out if these are symptoms of pregnancy and delivery or if these are symptoms of heart failure. And you need to make her feel comfortable that any symptom, any little thing she feels, you wanna know about, that you're gonna listen to it and you're going to give it the appropriate evaluation and assessment. So by asking her about her cardiac history and how she's felt and listening to her, she now has learned that she can feel comfortable to tell you everything because you're going to listen and you're going to pay attention to her. So if she starts having palpitations or shortness of breath, this is going to be the patient that's going to speak up early and help you um, decide to perhaps get an echo, take a look at her heart, get get bedside and see what's going on. So I think that talking to your patient is most important, number one and number two, because it guides your management and it builds the important therapeutic relationship uh, with her. Number three is going to be volume. So the biggest thing here is that um, we probably give most of our pregnant and laboring delivery patients too much fluid. So if you can do strict I's and O's and really know what's going in and out of your more complicated patients, that will be really helpful because often the answer is going to be diuresis, diuresis, diuresis. Um, and that partners with number four, which is going to be um, the contractility of your myocardium. So when you reach, we didn't talk about this in the physiology section, but when you reach labor and delivery, mom needs to now augment her cardiac output seven to 10 liters a minute, right? That is a lot. And so if you have a woman with, um, with cardiomyopathy, she, is not, she may not be able to augment her contractility. So the only thing she can do, like a little baby heart, is increase her heart rate. Um, so I trend maternal heart rate, and if it's increasing, I'm gonna do my POCUS, take a look at her heart, and see how the contractility is. So this number four is your cardiac output. You know it needs to go up, and if you can't help it go, if she can't 
uh, make her contractility increase on her own, you may need to give her an inotrope. So that's number four. Um, and then I would say number five is be the coach, be the, be the quarterback, organize the team, um, make sure that you are adequately prepared. And so that means you don't want to underprepare, but sometimes you also don't want to overprepare because, you know, planning a delivery in a cardiac OR with a CT surgeon and a perfusionist and an ECMO on standby, that's a lot of resources. And you certainly, we shouldn't be pulling that trigger for every patient. We should pull it when we need to pull it. Um, but we don't want to waste resources um, because we are falsely assessing risk and thinking patients are sicker than, than they really are. Um, so, Number five is organize appropriately and stay calm. Wow, that was amazing. Really, really great talking to you, Dr. Meng. And, and I want to say rule number one or, or your top, you know, one recommendation, it absolutely goes to any patient, right? I, I think that part of the problem with maternal mortality, when we dig it deeper into these uh, maternal mortality issue, is that patients were not, they, we didn't listen to the patient. Patients was, were telling us, hey, I don't feel well. I don't think this is normal. And, you know, there is a lot of maternal mortality that it's preventable. And your top one recommendation absolutely nails it. We have to listen to our patients. So thank you so much for bringing that up. Thank you so much, Dr. Meng, for your time. Uh, this was absolutely brilliant. Uh, you know, I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Antonio. It's always a pleasure to, to chat with you.